Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. This week in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy begins to look at the second question in chapter 6, where Paul addresses those who understand grace but are abusing it. All right, turn with me please to the book of uh, Romans chapter 6. Turn with me please to the book of Romans chapter 6. And we are more than halfway in this chapter. And I want to read from verse number 15. And then we'll come to our text this morning, which is verse number 16, 15 and 16. Follow with me please as I read uh, Romans chapter 6. 6 verse 15 and following. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience Unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the man of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded yourselves servants to uncleanness, and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For in the end of those things is death. But being now made Free from sin and become the servants of God, you have your fruit unto holiness and in the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this occasion to get look into your word again this morning. We ask you that you would meet with us and that your word would be used for the purpose for which you have designed it. May we perk up the loins of our minds and may we pay attention to your word and may we be aware of the fact that whenever your word is declared, you have said it will not return unto your void. It will either draw men to you or drive men away from you. It will either soften a heart here this morning or it will harden a heart. It will either produce fruit that leads to eternal life or it will result in someone turning away from you and to kissing death and damnation. Choices would have to be made this morning when your word is preached. And every one of us here this morning would make a choice after the word is preached. We either heed its warnings or we reject its teachings. But there's no such thing as neutrality here this morning. 
as we, your word is being preached. So I pray that each one of us would understand the gravity of being here this morning. And that we're either going to leave this place this morning more in contact with Christ or more condemned for our sins. And it will all depend on the choices we make this morning in response to your word. Would you therefore impress the importance of this hour in our hearts? And would you help us to give the attention to your word that is most appropriate? As regards myself, I pray for strength, I pray for grace, I pray for mercy. I pray, Lord, that you'll even help my voice and you'll also help my thinking and my thoughts so that I might be able to garner the truth and present it in such a logical, reasonable, biblical way that none can dispute that this is exactly what God has in terms of its meaning and its application. I ask for you to use your word this morning and if it please you this morning, we pray that a measure of your power will be demonstrated in our midst that your Holy Spirit works in our presence and he does the work that no man can do. That is to convict men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And we pray, Lord, that he would be disposed this morning to fulfill his mandate as was given by the Father and the Son in respects to humankind in this regard. I pray these mercies in your name. We ask for your blessing this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 6 is one of the easiest chapters to outline in the Bible. It is made up of 23 verses and is divided into two parts. The Apostle Paul makes the division of this chapter very simple. Because he divides this chapter with two questions. You find that he asked the first question in verse number one. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace be abound? That's the first section. And then he begins the second section with verse number 15 with another question. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. So this entire chapter is about question answer. Paul poses a question, then he answers that question. Paul poses another question, then he answers the other question. So it's a very, very simple chapter uh, when you look at the book itself. If you look at the questions, they seem quite similar, but again, they are not identical. The first question uh, that Paul asks, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It's a question that seems to be based on the distortion in terms of understanding what grace is. The Apostle Paul has been pointed out that where sin abounded, grace much more abound. And for some inconceivable, irrational way, believers began to think, well, if this is true, that wherever there's a lot of sin, there's a lot of grace, well, let's give God a greater platform to display his grace. So how do you give, in, you, you give that greater platform by committing more sin? See? So the more sin you sin, the more grace he gives. So let's, let's sin that grace may abound. It is distorted thinking uh, about biblical truth. And this is not the uh, only time you will find in the scriptures where people took the truth of God and distorted it in terms of their understanding of it. 
But please remember that we're dealing with people who are coming out of paganism, who have not been exposed to the gospel. We've been exposed to the gospel for 2,000 years. So such a question doesn't make sense to us. We say, but why, 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 how would anybody think that way? Well, if you were a pagan for two centuries or for 2,000 years and then you heard the gospel, it might lead you to think that because the gods you had before were like yourself and it didn't matter how you lived with your gods before uh, and therefore they took this thing and of course they, they started it. So they, they believe that somehow sin enhances God's grace and that by sinning we facilitate the expression of God's grace and therefore they use that particular question. The second question, which is in verse number 15, is quite similar to it, but it is different. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? What we have here now is the perversion of understanding what grace is and then to abuse it. Remember Paul points out that man was under two conditions. He's either under law, he's under grace. Before Christ came, man was under law. When Christ came, God moved man from under law and put man under grace. That was now assumed to mean that because there's no law, I can be a libertarian. I can practice antinomianism. I can do as I live, live as I please. It doesn't matter how I live because I'm saved. And once saved, always saved. So it doesn't matter how I live, how much I sin. See? Now you begin to understand the difference between the two. It's one thing to misunderstand the doctrine. It's another thing to understand that doctrine and then pervert it in order to facilitate the kind of lifestyle you want to live. Uh, to the Apostle Paul, such thinking was absurd. It was a product of profound ignorance. And the Apostle Paul had difficulty uh, believing that anybody can think that way. Now we've already looked at chapter 6 verse 1 to 14. And we want this morning to look at the second question beginning in chapter uh, 6, verse uh, 15 and following. And I want to show you how Paul answers this question. And there are three things I want to point out to you how we answer the question. Remember the question, verse number 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Then Paul responds. First of all, I want you to know that Paul responds by giving a very blunt answer. A very blunt answer. God forbid. Secondly, the Apostle Paul uses a basic axiom. What he does, he takes a general principle and he says, look at this general principle. And he will explain the principle that whoever a man obeys, he's a slave to. So if you're saying you belong to Jesus, but you're a slave of sin, you've got the wrong master. So he uses an axiom, and I'll talk about that very shortly, what that means and explain what he uses. And then thirdly, in verses 70 to 23, Paul gives a brilliant argument against this whole suggestion that because we're not under law and under grace, we can just go ahead and live as we please, and it doesn't matter. Now those are the three thoughts. I'll see how much we can cover this morning in these matters. The first thing I want you to notice is in, uh, Paul says in verse number 15, 
uh, what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? And notice his answer, the blunt answer, God forbid. The Apostle Paul wastes no time and he wastes no words. He gives a very forceful, unambiguous, blunt answer uh, as he did to the first question. And what Paul says is this. No, 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 no. Don't think that way. See, God forbid. The thing that you need to understand that this, the Apostle Paul uh, uses this particular expression, God forbid. Uh, actually, about uh, 14 times in his writings. He uses it three times in chapter 3, verse 4, 6, and 11. He uses it six times, others uh, in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 15, chapter 7, verse 7, chapter 7, verse 13, chapter 9, verse 14, chapter 11, verse 1, and chapter 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 11. So you find that Paul keeps having to say to these people, God forbid, God forbid. Remember, these are people coming out of paganism. They've never been exposed to the gospel before. They've taken their religion and brought their religion into the church and find that what Paul is teaching is the very opposite of what they believe. So they're trying to marry paganism to Christianity. And they're having problems accepting what Paul is teaching. And therefore they're reinterpreting what Paul is saying to facilitate their former pagan lifestyle. And Paul says, very bluntly, God forbid. This word that Paul uses, God forbid, is I'm told is the strongest idiom of repudiation in the New Testament. The strongest idiom of repudiation. It's a word that really in truth and fact, the Apostle Paul is, he has a sense of outrage in him. That anyone would think this way. The thought is abhorrent. As, Paul, uh, as far as Paul is concerned, and therefore the very suggestion, Paul answers very bluntly, such a question is not even worth an answer. My answer is very simple and very blunt. God forbid that you should ever think this way. See? I repudiate such thinking. Look, Paul will go on to point out that the very purpose of grace in this chapter is to set you free. You'll, you'll discover that. Uh, as we read and we see his argument that Christianity is about freedom. Christianity is not about bondage. It's not about enslaving. It's not about, it's about emancipation. See, that's what it's about. It's about setting a man free, liberating a man. And when God found every one of us, whether you want to admit it or not, you were a slave to your sins. A slave to your sin. You were manacled to your sin. You were dominated by your sin. God would only know this morning how many times you cried and you promised and you pledged and every new year you would change. But you couldn't. And the reason why you couldn't is because you were slave to the sinful nature. But when you got saved, the liberating power of Christ cut the manacle of those chains on you and set you free. So what Paul is saying here now, look, this idea is so irrational, so illogical. It is so absurd. 
Because the whole purpose of grace is to free you and to empower you to have victory over your sin. I want to say something that I think we make a big mistake about as uh, teachers and pastors. Because we study theology, we try to dissect theology and we try to make differences, differentiations between different Bible doctrines. We talk about the doctrine of justification. And then we talk about the doctrine of sanctification. And all the other doctrines you talk about. So what we, we, we make a, a distinction between this. There is justification here. And somewhere along the line there is sanctification. That's not biblical. I repeat, that's not biblical. You don't get saved here. And then 20 years down the line, you get sanctified. Justification includes sanctification. So when you are justified, the work of sanctification begins. The moment you got saved, that work begins. It doesn't take 20 years. But that's a doctrine people have been taught. So we have people comfortable in the fact that they're justified from, from their sin. They're not guilty. They're, not, they're saved. But they're not concerned how they live. Because the myth that you've been told is that you can be justified and not be sanctified. In Paul's thinking, in Paul's theology, that's not true. Justification guarantees the beginning of sanctification in your life. It is not a subsequent experience. Of course, when you begin to teach that now, people tell you that you are teaching uh, works salvation. You know, aren't we saved by grace? Yes, we're saved by grace. But being saved by grace, what does that mean? It means that you are empowered by grace to live a life that pleases God. It just doesn't mean that God shows favor. Yes, he shows, but that's not what all the teaching is about. It's not just about God shows favor in giving you the power to break the power of sin in your life. I wonder how many people have been misled down that road. And it's taken them 20 years before they start to put their life in order. It's one of the great tragedies of the church and the teaching of the church that we are so misled people that you are justified today, but you can be sanctified 10 years from here. That may be an explanation as to why we have the type of believers that we have. What a tragedy it is. So what Paul proceeds to do in this particular chapter is that he shows the deduction of that nature is an absurdity. And therefore, the Apostle Paul wants them to grasp the truth that the fact that you are justified means that you also are sanctified. That work begins the moment you got saved. You know why it begins the moment you got saved? Because the moment you get saved, what happens to you? I think, I think um, Neville is teaching on the Holy Spirit. Is he not? So the moment the Holy Spirit comes into you, he's called the Holy Spirit. Why do you think the Holy Spirit is there for? Why do you think they're calling the Holy Spirit? To make you Holy. He is indwelling you and he wants to dwell in a vessel that is clean. So therefore, he has to clean up the temple. So he begins that work in your life called sanctification. He doesn't come into your life 20 years after you get saved. He begins there. See, My point I'm making here this morning 
is that we can never countenance the incredible, improbable thought that a justified believer is not also in the process of sanctification from the time he's born into God's family. We know the same problem we have today is the same problem Paul had back in his days, and that was the fact that there were all types of people asking kind of weird questions of this nature that Paul had to address. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were some people attacking Paul along this line. Now, let me just say something else. Anytime you preach that a man is saved by grace, you open yourself to false charges. I repeat that. Anytime you really preach what the gospel is, you always open yourself to charges because you preach that a man is saved apart from works by grace. The moment you tell people that, you open yourself. You're now telling people they can get saved and then they can live as they please. See? So if you ever preach the gospel the way it's supposed to be preached, you will always be open to the same charge that Paul has here. You're preaching grace, Paul. You're not preaching law. So the more you begin to preach grace and there's no law that you're under, is that not liberating people to do as they please? But we don't change the gospel because we attack by those who claim that we're teaching a lack, uh, this whole antinomianism that you can uh, live as you please and libertinism that you can do whatever you want doesn't matter you don't have any law whatsoever but we're always open to that as a matter of fact if you look at Romans chapter 3 verse 8 for just a moment <clears throat> look at that particular passage Paul had some rivals and Paul had some antagonists and those people were trying to undermine Paul's credibility and they did it in a most grievous way because look what uh, he says in chapter 3 and verse 8 he said and not rather notice as we be slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say what are they saying let us do evil that what good may come that's how they took Paul's words and distorted it and that's where it's the same kind of question. If we're saved by grace, and grace is a platform for God to demonstrate grace, why we don't sin more? And that's exactly what they bring against Paul. He's being slandered. And his people are saying, you see what this man is teaching? This man is teaching, let us do evil that, that, uh, let, that good may come. Let us sin more that grace may come. That's the danger of preaching the gospel of grace. You're open, always open to slander and misrepresentation. But the Apostle Paul never curtailed his message in order to accommodate that kind of thinking. He preached the grace of God and he preached it again and again in dealing with his, his people. So the first thing that Paul does uh, in this chapter is that uh, he says to these believers in the answer to the question, he says, I want to give you a very blunt answer. And that blunt answer is God forbid. God forbid. Uh, it's inconceivable that this uh, would happen. Now, I, I want to say something else here before we begin to look at the second point. I want to talk about what St. Paul is talking about here in this chapter. Again, go back to chapter 6. And notice what he says in verse number 16. Know ye not that he to whom you use yourself servants to obey, his servants you are whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. What sin is he talking about? And I want you to understand this morning that the Apostle Paul is here dealing not with an occasional sin in the believer's life. He's not dealing with an 
unintentional stumble in the believer's life. That's not what he's dealing with. We all stumble. We all, on occasion, commit sin. But what Paul is dealing with here is habitual sin. That's what he's talking about. And the Apostle Paul uh, wants us to understand that a believer who has grace cannot deliberately, persistently, continuously live a habitual life of sin. It's impossible. See, impossible. That's his whole argument in this chapter. God forbid that you can ever conceive that such could happen. And you remember when we look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, it's the same thing John says in the same chapter. He that is born of God cannot habitually practice sin because his seed is in it. I didn't say that. If you think those words are too strong for you, if they're too strong for you, reevaluate your life. Because it is not the pastor saying that this morning. That's what John says. You can't love one part of the Bible and despise the other part. See? So what Paul is here dealing with in this chapter, chapter 6, he's dealing with the matter of living in a state of habitual sin. People who deliberately, willfully, knowingly, continuously live in sin. And I want to say to you that you ought to not give any person who lives like that any kind of assurance that they belong to God. Don't give them one hint of assurance. I have a, a person in mind right now as I speak to you, that you can't convince them and I can't convince them that they're not part of God's kingdom. And I'll tell you why. This is the person who habitually, again and again, lives in sin. And no matter what you do, no matter what you tell them, by the way, they'll go to one Baptist church and they hear, you know, and this is the problem. When you come to a Baptist church, you hear about sin. When you go to other church, you hear about politics. Okay? So that's why it makes people uneasy when they come to a Baptist church. But he will run from this church and, uh, because he heard something in the pulpit and he, you know what he thinks? You're targeting him. That's the thing. That's the guilt all day. Targeting him. He'll run and go to another church and he'll stay there for a few months and then he'll hear something. They're targeting me. So he's, the person has probably been in every single Baptist church in Antigua. But hasn't changed. And I tell you quite frankly, I think that person is in so much darkness and blindness that I, I don't know uh, how a person can go on believing and just knowing scripture and it doesn't change him. Does that make sense to you? The Bible says if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them for whom the God of this world have blinded their minds. Blinded. And when you're blind, you can't see. You just can't see. I would say more, but I, I don't want to be seen as though I am targeting but I know of no better example than that one. 
habitual living in sin. And no matter what church you go to, no matter what any pastor say to you, you still continue to live in that. And here, here's, 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 here's the argument. But other people sin too. <laughs> That's the argument. <laughs> Seriously. Every, he said, my weakness is this and another person got to be. So what if this is my weakness? What if my weakness is just chasing women? Every woman I want to get under her skirt. What if that's my weakness? But what if your weakness is lying? That's the argument that's used. But whether you be habitually fornicating or adulterating or habitually lying or stealing, it's still the same. It's habitual sin. And the Bible is telling you in chapter 6, perish the thought, God forbid. So if you're living the settled life of sin this morning, I bring you no comfort. I offer you no assurance in your life that you're part of the kingdom of God. I warn you, I warn you that to continue that course is going to lead to a place six, beyond six feet when you die. Take the Bible seriously. Don't ignore the Bible because you made some little decision some years ago and you said a little prayer and that was the end. But has your life changed? Have your life been transformed? Do you have any victory over sin? That's what I'm asking you. If the answer to that question is no, well, face the reality you are not a safe person. Bury your pride. Go to mommy, go to daddy, say, you know, I thought I was saved. But when I look at my life, it is clear I'm not saved. Would you help me, please? Do that. And I'll tell you this. Part of the reason people don't do that is because they're afraid that they came to church or they did something. We will tell them they're living a hypocritical life all the time. So they, 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 they are already, they're in a dilemma where they want, but they can't because they're fearful that people just judge them. That is not what Christianity should be. We should be rejoicing when that happens. And by the way, that would be a real warning to so many other people. Look, I've read of pastors who were preaching, came down for the pulpit and gave their heart to Christ. Believe it or not. I've known of deacons. When the invitation was coming, they came forward. And people said, but you were a deacon. Didn't matter anything. See, I wasn't saved. The Apostle Paul is trying to get our attention and he wants us to understand that conversion, grace, is a power in your life. Sin is a power in your life, but it's a power greater than your sin. It's called the power of grace. Greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. That's the biblical teaching. So the Apostle Paul's answer is very blunt. He says to them, God forbid. He doesn't elaborate. He doesn't feel the need for elaboration. He just makes a very blunt answer and that he feels is sufficient. But then notice number two, not only do we have Paul's blunt answer, but we have a basic axiom that Paul sets forth in this chapter. Um, he says in verse chapter six and, and verse number 16, he says, no, let, let me use an axiom. I'll, I'll explain it just a moment. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey his servants you are whom you obey? Word of sin unto death or, righteous, or obedience unto righteousness. Now, here's it. You know, when I was in secondary school, 
I learned that an axiom is a general truth that is so self-evident you don't need any proof. That's called an axiom. When I was studying geometry in secondary school, I learned some two things that are true no matter where you go. It is true whether it's in Africa, in Antigua, in America, or Asia. It doesn't make any difference. Here's it. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. That's an axiom. You can't argue about that, my brother. Anyone that would argue against that is just dumb and stupid. Because that's a fact. And you can test that fact from here. Don't, you can go home and test that fact. Take a line and mark it in your house and see what's the shortest, where, where's the short. Go into the bedroom and try curving it around, see if it's shorter. It's an axiom. It's a self-evident truth that does not need any facts to back it up other than the fact. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, just a given fact. I also learned, by the way, when I was in secondary school, that two parallel lines never meet. As long as they're parallel, they cannot meet. If they meet, they're not parallel. That's a fact. You can, you can argue that from now to, to, until Medusa bears get gray. You can't change that. That's an axiom. And here's another one that I learned that is so basic. Every triangle has three sides. If it has three sides, it's a triangle. You can't call it a quadrilateral. You can't call it a, 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 a trapezium. You can't call it anything than a triangle. Now that angle, those sides may be not the same. It may not be an equilateral triangle. It could be an obtuse triangle. It could be any right angle triangle. But the truth of the matter is, as long as it got three sides, there's only one word to call it, triangle. That is so self-evident that if any of you would argue against that, they'll put you in the mental asylum. It's a self-evident truth that is so clear that it doesn't need any proof because it's so self-evident. The other thing I learned when I, another axiom was this, that the three angles of a triangle add up to 180 degrees. You take any triangle and you take a protractor and you measure the angles. I don't care if you make it as big as this building. A small, if you take that triangle... All three angles add up to 100. And if it's not 180 degrees, guess what? It's not a triangle. That's an axiomatic truth. It doesn't change. When we moved from geometry and we went into algebra, uh, went into algebra I, I learned something called Pythagoras' theorem. And I think some of you can remember that. It basically states this, that the square on the hypotenuse is equal to some of the squares of the other two sides on the right angle triangle. The song mysterious to you? So I think all of us know that, right? That the square on the hypotenuse, if you square it, imagine the hypotenuse and you square it, and then you merge the two other sides and square it in a right angle triangle, you'll find that the sum of the two other sides is equal to the hypotenuse, the square of the hypotenuse. And by the way, that is true if you did this in Antigua, if you do it in Barbados, if you do it in Mercury, do it in Asia, it doesn't change. It's called an axiom. And so in verse number 16, Paul said, let me use an axiom now and uh, let me give you a truth that you can't deny that it is very, very solid. And here's what Paul says. Let, me, let us reason from common sense. What he wants to do is to show them the monstrous idea to suggest that because I'm under grace, I can just live as I please and I can just sin as I want to and it doesn't matter. See? This is the, the folly of what Paul is trying to say. And he's saying, okay, if you think that, let me give you an axiomatic truth. 
And what Paul does, he begins his reasoning, and uh, what he does, he points out to this particular axiom, and I want to point out uh, several things here in this particular passage. The one one thing is this, that it's, it's proper and right for a believer to use reasoning and logic. You know that some people think that you shouldn't reason if you use logic, something you know, you're unspiritual. Just give them Bible. Just quote Bible. But if you could defeat a man at his own grounds, if his ground is reason and logic, and you can use his own ground to defeat him, you gain some brownie points. You can always use scripture. Don't think that you're too spiritual to use logic and reasoning. The Apostle Paul uh, never felt that way. You find that throughout his writings, he always applied logic and reasoning. And did not God say, come now and let us do what? Reason together. Intellectually, God reasons with you. Paul now reasons with that thinking. Okay, I'm under grace. I'm not under law. So I can sin. I can live as I please. Paul said, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's think that one through. And let me give you an axiom. And here's the axiom. The person that you obey, you become a servant to. Does that make sense? So here's Paul's point. If you are serving sin, then who's your master? If you're obeying God, then who's your master? You see the logic? You can't say I am obeying sin and God is my master. That's the point he's making. The logic is so clear on this matter. It's called axiomatic reasoning. The Apostle Paul is brilliant uh, to bring this at this point and at this, this juncture. He's using logic. What vitality there is in his reasoning, what virility there is in his logic uh, in this particular passage. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy looks deeper into the specific words Paul uses in this axiom and derives biblical principles from it. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.